Today's reading is from James chapter 2, found on page 1213 of the Church Bibles. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit at the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who, you are, who are exploiting you? Are, you? are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not murder, uh, he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who have who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God? Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was it not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodgings to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Chris. Why don't we pray as we begin? Father, we thank you that you've managed to bring us here through the wind uh, and the dark 
to hear from you. We pray that you would be speaking to us this evening, helping us to understand your word a little bit better. Please, would you take us away from this evening, blow us home in a safe way, uh, in a way that helps us to know your word in this letter of James better. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, well done for making it through the Wizard of Oz world that we have outside this evening. Um, hopefully, you can hear me over the noise of the wind. Hopefully, the steeple won't fall over uh, while we're here tonight. Uh, as Paul said tonight, we're just having a little look, a little bit of an overview of the letter of James. That complements what we're looking at in the morning. But if you aren't a regular at our morning services, that's okay. Because maybe you've read the letter of James before, and it's one of those letters that raises the most questions. That's why we had chapter 2 there, uh, one of the more controversial chapters in the Bible. And tonight we're going to explore who James is, whether James agrees with Paul, that's the apostle and not our rector, and we'll look at some of the main themes. Uh, we've seen a couple in our reading today. But as we're here, why don't I start with a question to throw out to you tonight. What do you know about the letter of James? Why don't you just turn to a neighbor just for a minute. Uh, what do you know about James as we begin? Go. Let's come back together. Lots of good discussion there. I don't know whether it came up, but perhaps one thing that you've heard about the letter of James is that it's had a bit of a bumpy ride throughout church history. It wasn't actually fully accepted by the church until the 4th century, the 300s AD. But I want to say, don't let that put you off. L.T. Johnson, an American New Testament scholar, has argued very strongly that two early and influential Christian works from around 100 AD rely very strongly on this letter, on the letter of James. There on the right is one of them, Shepherd of Hermas, and the other one is one, Clement. And if that's the case, if these two very, very, very early Christian works rely on the letter of James, well, then it shows us that James is an early and authoritative letter. But we don't just need to rely on that, because we have a whole host of early church big hitters 
backing the letter too, long before it was officially accepted by the whole church. Big names like Irenaeus, Origen, Athanasius, Eusebius, Hilary of Poitiers, and I had to look up how you spell that, and Jerome, all backed James. All of them said, this is Scripture. One of the arguments that's made for why it wasn't officially included more is because James doesn't give us lots of theology. The early debates that the church was having, trying to work out exactly how the Father, Son, and Spirit go together, and all of those kind of things, James doesn't really give us any information on that. And so it wasn't included in the big early church debates. And so that just meant it fell a little bit by the wayside. But people who looked into it said, yes, it's important, let's have it. But perhaps it's not that so much that you've heard about. Perhaps you've also heard James mentioned with another big hitter of church history, with Martin Luther. There he is. Martin Luther himself, the father of the Reformation, if you like, he questioned whether the letter of James should be in our Bibles. And it's true that his theological emphasis on justification by faith meant, especially that chapter we've just read today, he had difficulties with it. In fact, he had some pretty unkind words for it. At various times, he said that James mangles the Scriptures, which is a bit harsh considering it's in the Scriptures, and he called it an epistle of straw. However, ultimately, he did change his mind. This was his final take on the book. I cannot include him among the chief books. By the way, if you've never read any Luther, he's very opinionated. As you can see here, just going to chuck out a comment on the entire book of the Bible. I cannot include him among the chief books, though I would not prevent anyone from including or extolling him as he pleases, for there are otherwise many good sayings in him. In fact, those who've read Luther's works have found out that he actually quotes James quite a lot, probably because James can be quite pithy. And other reformers never shared Luther's negative view. In response to what Luther said, John Calvin said, it is not surely required for all the books of Scripture to handle the same arguments. And I think that's probably fair. I think it's probably the case that Martin Luther wanted everyone sometimes to sound exactly the same. Calvin was convinced that James and Paul could be harmonized, and we will come on to that a little bit later. But before that, we have a question that we'll just look at briefly. Who is James? We know who Paul is, we know who Jesus is, but who is James? And James himself doesn't tell us. Chapter 1, verse 1, simply says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we know in the New Testament that there are three men called James. Let's look at them one after another. The first one is James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, the author of John's Gospel. He was one of the original 12 disciples. And we see him in Mark chapter 1, verse 19, Acts 12, verse 2. Sometimes he's called James the Great or the Elder. Yeah, there's school that our children go to, 
pretty much across the road from here. St. James's is named after this James. It took me a while to find out. It isn't on the website. It's because of the little logo they have, a little shell, which is also the shell from the Camino de Santiago, which you may have heard about in northern Spain, which I then found out is this James. So if you do a bit of digging, you can find things out. Now, this James is sometimes called James the Great or James the Elder, and he was the first apostle to be martyred. He was killed by Herod Agrippa in 44 AD. The second James is James, the son of Alphaeus. He's mentioned in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 3 and chapter 15, and that is basically all we know about him. He was an apostle. We know nothing else. The third James is Jesus' brother, the son of Mary and Joseph. We know him from the book of Acts, that he becomes a believer after the resurrection. And he's influential in the church in Jerusalem. We find him in Acts 12 and in Acts 15, going forward from there. Ultimately, the church decided that it must be this James who wrote this letter. Why? James the Great died in 44 AD. That's too early. James, son of Alphaeus, no one knows anything about him. And so long-standing tradition says this is James, the Lord's brother. This tradition is supported by the overlap between what we see James believes here in his letter and how James, the Lord's brother, behaves and acts in the book of Acts. And so it dovetails quite nicely. But that's enough of that. We don't have any more time for that. The next question we have is the big one. Do James and Paul disagree with each other? Now, you might be thinking, oh gosh, I'm so glad you're talking about this tonight, Jack. This has just been my number one issue for years. Or maybe more likely, you might be thinking, why is anyone asking this question? Why don't you turn to a neighbor and ask them if they're asking this question? Go. So why do we ask this question? Well, Chris gave us a clue by reading James chapter 2 for us. And we need to remember that Martin Luther had his doubts about this letter. And so this conversation about whether James and Paul disagree with each other all goes back to the time of the Reformation. The big question at that time was this. Is salvation monogistic or synergistic? Let me explain. That is, are we saved by one thing, mono, one, by faith alone, or are we saved by both faith and keeping the law, by doing good works as well? 
the Reformers said we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, monogistic. Whereas the Roman Catholic Church that didn't join the Reformers said, no, we are saved by faith and by doing good works. Two things, more than one, synergistic. The Reformers would quote the letters of Paul to argue for salvation by faith alone. And the Roman Catholic Church would turn to James. James chapter 2 that Chris so kindly read for us. Ever since then, people have been lining James and Paul up against each other. Battle royale. And look at this. On the surface, Galatians 3, Paul, writing Galatians, points to Abraham and says, so also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Or in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So that sounds pretty monogistic, right? Saved by faith alone. But look at James in our reading today. If you've got chapter 2 open there, verse 24. You see that a person is considered righteous, talking about Abraham as well, just like Paul did, by what they do and not by faith alone. Hmm, sounds much more synergistic, right? Ooh, what do we think of that? So how can we make a decision? How can we decide what's going on there? Do Paul and James disagree? Does Paul hold a monogistic view and James hold a synergistic view of how we are saved? Well, the commentator Douglas Moo, or Doug Moo for short, has a handy question for us to ask ourselves as we try to decide on this one. And I think it's a really helpful question for us. The question is, and I think I put it, I think I put it on the slide, the next slide. Yes, and there he is, a great little picture of Doug Moo in the corner. Isn't he a cheery guy? The question is, is James saying, in James chapter 2, in his letter, is James saying that the believer must add works to faith in order to be saved? Or is he insisting that true saving faith will inevitably work? Does that question make sense? Is James saying that there must be synergism? Is he saying that you must have works and faith, one and two, and you've got to add them together in order to really be saved? Or is he insisting that a real saving faith, faith alone that is real, will produce works? So the works don't save, the works come out of being saved. Because if James is saying that the believer must add works to faith, then he is doing what the Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation said. He is synergistic. More than one thing is necessary. And in that case, well, James and Paul do disagree. But if what James is saying is that true saving faith, faith alone, will inevitably produce works good works, good things, well then James and Paul don't disagree. Because I think we'll see Paul would say exactly the same thing. So let's take Doug Moo's question 
and see what Paul and James have to say to see whether they can be harmonized. And there's a first question for us as we look at this. We need to know the context. Who are the two of them talking to? Because James and Paul, they aren't talking to each other here. They're not sending letters to each other in a big argument. That's not what's happening. James is writing his letter to a bunch of churches who, uh, who have heard people tell them that once you believe in Jesus, you don't have to follow the laws anymore. Now, let me be clear, the laws in this case aren't the laws of the government. They're the laws of God. They're God's laws that we see in the Old Testament. People have come to them and said, great, guess what, guys? You're not saved by following the law anymore. You're saved by faith. And that means you can do whatever you want now. And James is replying to people who are replying to churches where they've heard this kind of thing. And he's saying, no, 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 no. That's not what a life of faith looks like at all. A life of faith includes the response in us of a changed life. But who is Paul talking to in his letters? Well, Paul, we know from his letters, is often responding to teachers who are kind of saying the other thing. These are teachers who are saying that believers must keep all of the law to be saved. So Paul is talking to churches that are made up of lots of uh, Gentile believers. Gentiles are people who aren't Jews. So the Jews had a category that was God's people, the Jews, and literally everyone else in the whole wide world, and they're Gentiles. And Paul is often writing to literally everyone else in the whole wide world, churches, new churches that have been created. And these churches are hearing from teachers telling them, you must be exactly like the Jews of the Old Testament. You must keep all the law in order to be saved. And Paul insists in his letters that this isn't true. He says, no, 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 salvation comes through faith in Jesus alone. So knowing that context, what the situations that the church is being written to are, can we do what Calvin said we could? Can we harmonize Paul and James? We've said that Paul believes salvation comes through faith alone. But, but what happens next for Paul? Then what? Does Paul think the believer can just continue to live as they did before. Because that is what James is coming up against. That is what he's arguing against. People saying you can just keep living the way you did before. And well, when we read Paul's letters, we see that that's not actually what he says. Here's Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 
and perhaps more pithily, here's Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Jesus Christ to do what? Good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And there are so many other passages, I've not quoted them because we'd be here all night. But clearly we can see from this, Paul insists, once a person is saved by faith, and saved by faith alone, they will inevitably live a changed life, filled with the works God has set them to do, good works. That's what it is for Paul, for a believer to be in Christ. And that is often the uh, metaphor he uses, being in Christ. And so to be in Christ through faith is salvation and ultimately transformation. We do good works because we have been saved. But what about James then? What about James? Does he go further than Paul? Is he synergistic? Let's remember Doug Moo's question. Is James saying that the believer must add works to faith to be saved? Or is he insisting that true saving faith will inevitably work? Exactly what we've just seen Paul say. So what have we read in our reading today? James chapter 2, 17. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. When talking of Abraham, he says, you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Well, if you think of it in the words of Paul, just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may live a new life doing the works God prepared in advance for us to do, maybe they match up after all. I wonder, what do you think? Is James insisting that you must add works to faith in order to be saved? Or is he insisting, as Paul does, that true living faith will inevitably produce good works if it really is true living faith? And is he not warning us that we need to be careful we don't only think we are saved if we are not producing any works. What do you think? Turn and chat together. Maybe this is, you're like, this all seems silly to me. Why don't you chat to each other? See what you think.
like to come back together. You've probably guessed by now what I think. I think they can be harmonized. In fact, I think this is one of those rare occasions in life where we get to have our cake and eat it. You see, we get the assurance of knowing from where we start in our salvation, as Paul tells us, that we are completely justified, completely saved by Jesus alone. We have the assurance of knowing that we don't actually work for our salvation. It isn't our works that save us. It is Jesus alone. And so we are not burdened by our failure. We are gloriously ransomed and freed by Jesus. That's, if you might like it, at the beginning of our faith journey. But as well as that, that's having our cake. But what's eating it? Well, you see, as well as that, we get to become holier. We get to become more like Jesus, not because we have to, but because we can, because Jesus has freed us to be so, and because Jesus makes us so. And so if from the beginning of our Christian life, what we see is that vision that Paul gives us of being saved, of being brought into a new life completely because of Jesus, well, then we also get to eat our cake at the end of our life. We get to eat our cake from the perspective that James is stood, from the perspective of Judgment Day, looking back over our life. James says, you've got to have your cake and you get to eat it. On the day of judgment, you'll be able to look back and see how alive your faith really was. To see the works that have been done in you, all of the ways that you have shown Jesus' holiness and goodness in the world. Not perfectly, because only Jesus is perfect. But we get to have our cake and eat it. We get to be so thankful to Jesus, not only for saving us, but for the way he does good works in and through us. So that's what I think, looking forward and looking back, speaking to the people that they're speaking to, using the language that they use and the the ways they process things, they can be harmonized, teaching us the joy of being able to have our cake and eat it. But let's move on then. What are Jesus's big themes? And I'll try and rattle through these because I'm aware of the time. And the overarching theme of James, I think, is there can be such a thing is the growth and development of the Christian into spiritual fullness. From that point Paul's talking about of salvation to the point James gets to of Judgment Day, the growth of us into spiritual fullness, into becoming more like Christ through our life of faith, the journey of faith. And for James, this isn't simply advice. It's not like one of those little books you can go and pick up uh, at the airport that says, 50 pages and here's how to make a million pounds and be a great person. See, it's actually far more important than that. James is drawing his readers here in his letter into the fullness of life. And for James, that is a way, deliberately life away from the way that leads to death. And that conflict between life and death is a key theme in the book. Conflict. James tells his readers early on in chapter 1, verses 13 to 16, that the old nature of our evil desires is still within us. Our new birth in Jesus, our salvation through faith in him, doesn't automatically solve the problem or put us beyond the reach of temptation. 
Instead, James says, it puts us into the arena where our old nature and our new nature battle it out. We see that from verse 18 onwards. But the conflict isn't only internal. There's also all the external trials of life that we face. Patient endurance is one of God's ways of maturing his people, James says, chapter 1, verse 4. Ultimately, so that they will receive what James calls the crown of life, a reward for winning, for persevering in life. Within this, we see James teaching us that there's no easy way to holiness. Uh, one of the commentators I was reading, Alec Matea, uh, has a little quote. He says, Ask James, does the road wind uphill all the way to heaven? And hear him reply, yes, to the very end. That isn't James saying that we have to work our way to heaven, but that life as a Christian is a life of conflict. It is hard. The good news, of course, is that we have Jesus with us. He will get us there. Another important theme is Christian lifestyle. Chapter 1, verse 27, does a good job of giving us an example of what a right Christian lifestyle looks like to James. It's a holiness lived out in the world, doing good in it, but also marking us off from it. These two sides are shown again from chapter 3, verse 13 onwards. In chapter 3, verse 13, James takes a positive, calling on Christians to live a good life. But then in chapter 4, verse 4, he takes a negative, saying friendship with the world is enmity with God. So Christians then are to live a life of holiness whilst engaging in the world, being in the world, but not of the world. Citizens of heaven, even as we are citizens of Manchester. Depending on how loyal you are to Manchester, may depend on how close you put Manchester to heaven. Linked to this, of course, is the important theme of church fellowship. The church, James says, is God's family. Notice again and again, he calls them brothers and sisters. In chapter 1, verse 18, he says they are children born of the same father. And as such, James stresses in chapter 2 that the church should be a fellowship which cares for each other. James calls on people to watch their tongue when speaking to each other at the end of chapter 1 and in 4, 11 to 12. Not to slander each other or to grumble. Basically, not to do any of the things that might break up fellowship, break up families. We all know of families, maybe our own, where what people have said breaks relationships. Jesus says, uh, James says, don't do that. Instead, in chapter 3, verses 17 to 18, James encourages wisdom that is pure and peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, impartial, and peacemaking. All things that encourage and build unity in God's people. 
James's concern for how we use our tongues is key. How we speak and what we say has a major impact, not just, of course, on relationships within our churches, but on how we witness into the world and to our own personal spiritual growth and maturity. Imagine if every Christian spoke only graciously, and if every church was united in its message and witness to the world, as James calls us to here, what a wonderful witness that would be. Another powerful witness to the world that we saw in our reading today is his concern for the needy. James's theme of concern for the needy. The theme of the rich and poor recurs in the letter again and again. Chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Verses 14 to 17. Chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. James points out that wealth can breed arrogance and assume a right to special treatment, which blocks humility, our trust and reliance on God. James stresses that God's heart is for the needy and that ours should be too. And this raises a question for us. Do we think of this theme of compassion for the needy as strongly as James does? Have we been tempted in the past to think of it as an optional extra to our growth in our faith? to our development as a Christian into spiritual fullness? Or do we see it as important in our life as James considers it to the development of Christians? If compassion is in God's nature, as James suggests, well, as we become more like him, surely we should be filled with it too. And so we've had a few there. Conflict, lifestyle, church fellowship, Concern for the needy. Lots of big themes about how we grow as individuals and together into the spiritual fullness that God calls us to. Lots of big themes that if we properly grasp them can help us grow into the people God wants us to be. The Christ-like people. His holy people. And well, that's a taste of James for you. Hopefully, if you're a morning service goer, as well as uh, those services, this has just helped you to frame our week-by-week sermons. And hopefully, if you're not, well, it's just given you a little taste of what we're looking at in the mornings. You can always, of course, listen to them online, or you're very welcome to come along. But either way, either way, my prayer this evening is that this has been helpful that it's given you a little taste of James. And as you go out into the week, well, maybe you'll be able to think about what it means to be growing into spiritual fullness, the spiritually mature person that God is making you to be. Let's pray. Father, we may have come with lots of questions about James tonight. And maybe we've barely begun to touch the surface of what we were hoping to hear. Perhaps we came tonight with no real questions about James. And maybe it has just begun to open up for us a conversation about your word. We pray, Father, that 
you would be using James in the mornings and here this evening to be helping us, your people made new in Christ, saved by him, to be becoming those who are spiritually mature, spiritually full, that you would be growing us through James into the people you want us to be, people who are like Christ, who are full of Christ, who are made more into his likeness and who are able to show him to the world. Would you be building us into his people through your word? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.